Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. It would be fantastic to see you there, where you can actually suggest questions ahead of time for future interviews and have your name mentioned in the show. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to interview a friend and awesome entrepreneur in the form of Jerry Zhao. Jerry is the founder and CEO at Retention Science, the startup that brings intelligence to your marketing automation through artificial intelligence that delivers a personalized customer experience at scale. To date, Jerry's raised over 10 million in VC funding with Retention Science from great friends of the show including Forerunner Ventures, Upfront Ventures, Clark Landry, Andy Rankin and more fantastic names. And prior to founding Retention Science, Jerry founded two other e-commerce marketing technologies and served as strategic innovation officer to Clear Channel Radio. If that wasn't enough, Jerry's also a guest lecturer at the Kellogg School of Management and sits on the board of Penango. I'd also want to give a huge hand to Jason Lemkin and Kirsten Green at Forerunner for the intro to Jerry today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform, and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360-degree view of your reputation across the web. With their robust API, that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and really increase visibility on Google. And you can head over to reviews.io now and sign up for a trial. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications, allowing you to build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices. And that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad from WeWork to Uber, to Stripe. Whether you are a one-office company with less than 100 people to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communications first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Ularis. Ularis is a management platform for event florists. It features contact management, proposal development, wholesale production planning, and invoice and billing, all lovingly arranged for the needs of floral designers managing weddings and other special occasions. And you can learn more at ularis.com. That's U-L-A-R-A-S.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Ularis did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But that's quite enough of these dulcet British tones. So now I'm very happy to hand over to a dear friend and phenomenal founder, Jerry Zhao, founder and CEO at Retention Science. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jerry, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. A big hand to Jason Lemkin and Kirsten Green for the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, Jerry. Harry, I can't wait. Being a huge fan of your podcast so far. Well, that's so kind of you. But I want to kick off today with a little about you. And you came into the world. And how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and come to found Retention Science? Yeah, I'm a three-time entrepreneur, so founded two other companies, software-related and both in the MarTech and loyalty space, and started Retention Science about six years ago. We are a SaaS company that essentially is a personalization engine that works with some of the world's most innovative brands like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Olay, Dollar Shave Club, you name it. One of the things that I'm personally excited about is really watching how software and AI and this really transformed the way we live, the way we 
make decisions and the way we empower our users to live a better life. So that's exactly what our software does to enable marketers to make better decisions at scale and to really help them create a more personalized campaigns and communications with their end customers. I mean, my word, what a list of clients you do have there. But I do want to touch, you said up there about the founding of the company. And we spoke before and you mentioned that there are maybe three top mistakes you made since starting the company. So starting on that very positive note, tell me, my friend, what are the three top mistakes? <laughs> well, I would say I've made a lot of mistakes, Harry, but I think the three that if I were to, and I will start another company down the road, I think the three things that I would focus on, one is first thing, I, I would definitely focus on hiring more experienced operators, whether it's on the sales side, the marketing side, or engineering front. I'm very, very lucky that I have a co-founder who serves as our CTO. His name is Andrew Wagi. And the very first day, we hired a fresh grad out of Caltech. Incredibly smart mind, but I I think that if we were to do again, we would still hire our team member number one, but we would also compliment him and our team by hiring someone who's just a little more experienced, maybe have scaled the team so we can move a little faster because in the early days, time is essence and it's money. So we need to move really, really fast. The second thing that I would have done differently and probably is around um, the area where I would invest much, much more in design and UI and UX of the software. I think I underestimate just how much people are above us are visual. And so when well, you have a great product that the back end is really strong, you can process a lot of data, you can talk about all the machine learning capabilities and AI you have, that's all great. But at the end of the day, when you're selling to a customer, they cannot see any of that. All they care about is how your product looks. Does it look cool? Does it have cool visual effects? And being able to invest in some of those UI and UX design, and which is why Stanford has now their design school, I think that's definitely very important. And the last part I would say is investing in sales and, and the sort of the SDR, BDR machine early on. And I think this is definitely something that Jason, one of our investors and one of my personal mentor has always talked about. He, he certainly blocks a lot on Quora and his personal blog around just the emphasis around hiring the right head of sales and having a demand gen team and then really build out a well-oiled engine machine and truly understand who you are going after. Because at the end of the day, it is really, really hard to get to 100,000 MR. But after that, it's almost like you kind of have something rolling and then you can just scale that very quickly by fine-tuning certain parts of your operations. And I certainly think that investing in sales and marketing early on is absolutely critical. And that's something that I waited a little bit until I had product market fit versus I think that's something that you can start honing in and testing out your messaging even before the product is fully baked. Well, I mean, you gave me so much to unpack with those three. I do have to ask you, you mentioned there about kind of hiring more experienced people early on. Now, I often speak to Jason. He says in the early days of a startup, really in today's world of incumbency and the checks that they pay their employees, you can either <laughs> as a startup hire jack-of-all-trades young enthusiastic people or the maybe slightly burnt-out 50-year-olds who are looking maybe <laughs> for a place to sunset and plateau. I'm intrigued. Would you agree with that? And how do you think about maybe attaining those more experienced individuals in this check-heavy incumbent world? Yeah, I think that's a really difficult one for early stage especially if you haven't raised some sort of funding to proven out that there's at least smart people that will get behind your idea and then to convince those experienced incumbents that to join your team and lead your team and take on big risks. I think that is a pretty tough pitch. At the same time, I think there's nothing 
nothing wrong in a, like Jason said. I think having someone who's really, really hungry that wants to work directly with the CEO, the founder versus she or he might have to kind of work through the ladder and then kind of climb up the organizational hierarchy. Part of the beauty of being a startup or early stage company is that everyone's hustling together. Everyone is wearing multiple hats. And, and as a result, you become a little bit more of a generalist. But specifically on the sales and marketing side, I think one of the key things like my current head of sales and who is a, a guy named James, he's been with me for about five years now. And I would say he's sort of just kind of what Jason describes, really, really hardworking individual. He is an Ironman outside of the office. He competes and he played baseball and just a really, really hardworking person. But at the same time, he wasn't trained as a salesperson. And what I did recognize early on is this really smart guy. He's incredibly charismatic and he can connect with people, he can problem solve. So I hired him as sort of my right-hand man. And then you know, over the course of the year, he proved himself out, closed more deals than a lot of way more experienced uh, salespeople that we've hired. And then slowly, you know, just kind of climb up the sort of our small team and evolve into and now as our head of sales. So I think everybody comes in different shapes and sizes. And so there's definitely oftentimes it's case by case, but in our scenario, it definitely is one of those cases where maybe a super experienced person wasn't the right method for us. And we found a younger hustler that is incredibly bright and willing to work hard and then make that work. My word, charismatic and an iron man. I do hate people like that. Too perfect. <laughs> but I do want to break the interview up today, Jerry, into a couple of different segments, starting on the theme of successfully selling to enterprise, then moving to really standing out from the crowd, both thematically and geography wise, and then finish yep. on good old capital efficiency and profitability. Does that sound good? I love it. Profitability is my favorite topic. It is mine too as a VC now, but I, I speak to hundreds of SaaS founders <laughs> and a dominant challenge they always face is successfully selling into these mega enterprises of today as a small startup. You've done this so successfully, as we have said there, P&G, Olay, Unilever. So tell me, Jerry, how did you sell into them? I think it really started out by having successful case studies that are relevant to them. As a younger startup in day one, we focus on certain industry vertical and then building successes with them. So having been able to work with the Honest Company, Dollar Shave Club, hair care product companies, it really strengthens our ability to tell the stories and showcase things that we've done that have led to mega successes. And I do think it's a very, very lengthy process to sell into enterprise companies. And oftentimes, even if they want to work with you, their internal procurement team or how things get vetted out and just to get all the right stakeholders around the table to be able to say yes, oftentimes that can take three to four weeks, even if you already get an executive sponsor. So selling enterprise, I think I would advise a lot of founders that it is oftentimes difficult, but then it's a must have. And then we call that kind of whale hunting. And you just have to balance with closing other smaller deals so you can continue to have momentum and sort of increase your MRR along the way because no VCs, no board members will be okay with the founder or a company to simply go whale hunting for nine to 12 months and never have to worry about increasing their sales in the interim. So for us, it's really about having the right case studies, the relevant toolkit, and really showing up at the right time too. So Procter & Gamble is an incredibly innovative company, but at the same time, they have their inherent challenges as they continue to innovate as a traditional CPG company. So I think that if we had 
come to them more than five years ago, they would have said, you know what, this sounds cool, but this is probably not a priority. So I think there's oftentimes timing and luck plays a huge factor. And one of the things I always say to my team is that, you guys, the only thing we can control is how hard we work. So we're going to work damn hard. And then when luck is by our side and the timing is right, we will at least recognize it. Otherwise, if the deal is right in front of you, you won't even capture it because you don't work hard enough. So I think those are the things that I really think about when it comes to approaching a large enterprise account. Can I ask, in terms of those large enterprise accounts, I always say to founders, you have to be a top three buying consideration for the internal champion that you're pursuing. Would you agree with that? Or is that maybe too binary? I absolutely agree. I don't think it's binary at all because these large organizations, the buyers and the sponsors, they are so busy. And it's not because they want to be busy, but everybody's wearing multiple hats. And within large organizations, typically, it's just like everyone talks about, it's when you get up top, it's really a, a pyramid. And and so there are very, very few people that can make the ultimate decisions and sign off on a contract. So oftentimes it becomes just a very, very tough from a timing perspective just to get them to say yes, because they have 50 other decisions they're trying to make. So you've got to be one of the top three in consideration. And then your job as a founder or CEO is to work very, very closely with your team to figure out the best pitch. And these companies will appreciate that you're showing up at their first step while you still have to run a company. And I think this is where where sometimes startup can win deals against large companies because we certainly have gone up against Oracle, Salesforce, you know, unless the account's big enough. But I, I know in our case, Larry Elson or Mark Benioff, as amazing as they are, they weren't showing up at the client's meeting, but I'm there. And then so I think it's an indicator of commitment and it shows good faith. And sometimes they will take a leap of faith if you have enough of proof points and case studies to really show them that, hey, this is exactly in our wheelhouse and we can absolutely do a great job for you. You said there about that being their pre-sale, and it's really what gives them that confidence and validation in you as a company that you're committed. I'm intrigued post and service side. How much time do you spend with your customers? And, and have there been any learnings around the importance of this as a founder? Yeah, I was recently just at a, a CEO dinner with Dan Springer, who was formerly the CEO of Responses, which was acquired by Oracle for close to $2 billion, and now is the CEO of DocuSign, which he just took public. I literally asked him the same question. He said that he spent about 20% of his time with his customers. And just obviously his company is way bigger than mine. So I use that as sort of a, as a benchmark. I would say I probably spend about a third of my time with existing customers, a third of my time with new sales prospects and new business development, and a third of my time with my team. And then maybe looping investors in, in that category. In general, I'm a firm believer of really getting on the road, getting to know your customers, because your job is listening to your customer complaint and filter out things that are personal or emotional versus that are concrete and very, very constructive feedback to help you improve both on the product side as well as services side. So my job is definitely to just let our customers to really vent and complain and, and so I can learn from them. And I think that is absolutely critical to a CEO's job. I do have one final question on the sales to enterprise that obviously one kind of big benefit is their ability to really pay multi-year deals due to their mm -hmm. size and scale. How do you think about 
that and approach that. And what are your thoughts on the importance of this being prepaid? Yeah, I would say in our first three years in business, it is pretty difficult to get customers to commit to even just one year. Uh, oftentimes, especially with bigger businesses and enterprises, if you are not necessarily a known entity to them, they want to start you out in a pilot just because they're taking on risk in working with the company at your scale. And then you slowly grow their confidence in your ability to execute. And then you lock them in on a one year and then start asking for multi-year contracts. So for us, now as a much more mature company, we certainly ask for multi-year contracts. So the way we approach that is by really explaining to the customers or prospects just how much efforts we're also putting in upfront to commit to making sure they're successful. Because as a SaaS business, oftentimes there's such a heavy investments upfront. And then you're really not recuperating the cost and, and really start generating a profit until a couple months into the engagement. And then so helping your customers understand that you're really investing a lot in them upfront. And therefore, you would like to see them having a little bit of commitment, demonstrating some commitment to you as a business partner, they will be able to understand. But again, at the end of the day, it all comes down to how important your technology or the services that you're providing is essential to their business, because that just allows you to have some negotiation leverage there. In terms of getting prepaid, for me, for our company, it is very important. We are a profitable company and comparing to most startups at our scale, we probably are one of the least funded startups. And that is absolutely by design. So while I'm a big fan of our investors and, and the VC community, and I certainly continue to maintain dialogues with them, and, and we have a lot of investors that are interested in putting more capital in the business, one of the things that I do focus on is to get most of our customers to either prepay or certainly by annual payment, if not annual upfront payment. Um, Salesforce does it, HubSpot does it, where customers are both. So oftentimes, I think it's incredibly important because that just give you more cash to be able to invest in whether it's payroll or additional research and development or sales and marketing investments. And I think that if you can certainly ask for it, no doubt in my mind that customers will push back and often do push back because they, they also do want to have cash on hand. I think that's just something that as a founder and CEO, you have to kind of see what is the norm within your industry vertical. No, absolutely. I completely agree on kind of the additional benefits of that cash flow. You mentioned the element of profitability and capital efficiency. Obviously, being a venture nerd, it's one of my main passions in life. Clearly, <laughs> I need to get out more. But you've been profitable now since 2018. With that in mind, how do you look then to balance between kind of inherent fast growth required of startups and then also maintaining profitability? What does that mindset and balance look like? Well, first of all, here, if you ever do get out, hit me up because being a nerd, I probably need to get out more too. But uh, <laughs> I think balancing fast growth and maintaining profitability, and Jason has oftentimes said like in the early days, if you're not burning enough cash, you're probably not growing fast enough. For us, because we're a little bit further along and we've kind of passed that sort of initial sort of sticker, right now for me, it's really understanding where are the levers that I can improve and then fine tune and by whether it's uh, placing the right experienced people to help us become better in what we do to have that accelerated growth. In terms of maintaining profitability versus not necessarily having a um, crazy year-over-year growth, I think from last year to this year, we're still growing at about 120% while maintaining profitability. So I think, again, it comes down to product market fit. If you have a good product, I think sometimes the product does help sell itself. Obviously, we are also in a competitive category. So I always say that when you build a company and build a product, really do a deep dive on your competitive sort of landscape. Are you selling vitamins? or are you selling pain?
painkillers. To me, those are very, very distinct services and product offering. If you're selling vitamins, that means when times are good, people will want to buy you because they want to maintain their health. However, I think selling painkillers is a little more important because it's a necessity. If people are having a headache, they need to buy you. If people need their, to run their business on your product and your software, that means they need to buy you. So we're in the camp of being a painkiller. And in the early days, I would say the product was probably more of a nice to have, so more of a vitamin. And then as a result, we were nowhere near profitability as well as sort of that accelerated growth. And now we really find the right pitch and then sort of identify a scalable way to do that in a profitable manner. And it allows me to really make decisions based on what I think is good for the business long term versus having to sort of meet a specific type of criteria to give VC the kind of return that they're looking for. So I think while I'm absolutely aligned with my investors and my board of directors, I do have a little bit of flexibility in terms of building the company in ways that I think makes sense. Because sometimes, you know, I hate saying this, but there's certain type of revenue growth and trajectory that we put on company. Sometimes it breaks a company because the revenue expectations and growth expectation is not necessarily possible because you raise so much money or because the valuation of the round is so high that I know plenty of company that end up getting stuck or they end up having to replace the CEO or the founder because the revenue trajectory just didn't end up meeting the expectations of the VC or where the company's value is expected. So I think that's one of the balance that I'm trying to maintain. So everyone around the table is happy and feel good about the progress that we're making. But tell me though, when selling to enterprise and kind of thinking with that profitability mindset, the hard element's always kind of the sales rep payback with enterprise customers because it can take nine months for any ROI to show from that sales rep. How do you think about this with the profitability hat on in mind? And when is that inflection point when really you've got to start delivering? Yeah, I think that is a really difficult one to figure out in the first two years of the company. It's because essentially as a small company, before you have the kind of capital and reserve like Salesforce and Oracle, early stage companies, you're really not sitting on top of too much cash and every dollar you really ought to be invested in growing the business. I would say in the first two years of retention science, we're certainly fronting sales commission and the cost of sales and marketing. And really, we're not seeing enough profit on even just the money that we're charging. Because if you look at just from an MR perspective, no doubt most businesses in the early days, we discount a little bit in order to onboard them. One thing to know, actually, Harry, uh, is in the history of the company, we've never given our product for free. I'm a firm believer of if you believe in your product and you believe the value you bring to your customers, you should never give it away for free, even to just get a case study because they have to have skin in the game. And I think that is really important. In terms of ensuring our sales rep payback time and ramp up time for on the customer side to ensure there's ROI, what we had ended up doing is we're trying to aligning the sales payout or commission payout schedule with the payment terms of the customer. Sometimes in an early stage company, it's really, really difficult to do, especially if the founder or the CEO is managing that process. So what we did in the early days is we simply pay out. So for a 12 months MR deal, we pay out the first six months at close and then we pay out the second six months, six months into it. So we're always six months early. So that way your AEs or your account execs still feel incentivized because they're not waiting for too long to get paid. But at the same time, that does mean that as a company, you are actually paying out commission before you collect the revenue on the book. So that is a little bit difficult because you're having cash out so which is why earlier discussion, we talked about trying to get the customers to 
pay upfront as much as possible because that allows you to have just a little more capital to work with, including paying out your accounting tax and, and commission early on. No, absolutely. We spoke about kind of those quality reps there. Often the thing I hear from people outside of the Valley, especially with enterprise reps, is that there's simply a shortage. I'd love to discuss your location being in LA. What are some of the most prominent challenges of scaling a SaaS company in LA versus SF? And I actually talked about this at one of Jason's Saster events as well. I think that being in LA, there aren't as many SaaS companies compared to, to San Francisco. There are a growing amount, and I would say there's a few of us, we all know each other. So we know sort of the candidate pool as well as the talent pool, especially on the experience side at the VP level. And so oftentimes we have to look in the Bay Area to find folks that potentially are more excited about the lifestyle of what LA has to offer because I, I would humble brag a little bit. We do have better weather and the lifestyle is a little bit, uh, maybe a little more comfortable compared to Bay Area because it's getting pretty crammed and LA has a, geographically, it's pretty spread out. And then so I think it certainly is a challenge to find salespeople with a lot of years of experience in enterprise sales. But at the same time, they do exist. And then part of it just you have to work a little bit harder versus if you're in the Bay Area, you just go on your LinkedIn and look at people who worked at Oracle or Salesforce or success factors. There's just a a lot of companies that you can hire from. So uh, it's I think it's not necessarily the case in LA. But at the same time, it means that when you find the right folks, it, it really allows you to really grow with them. I, I think LA is very, very competitive and as a job market and also within a tech and SaaS vertical. But at the same time, I, I don't think it's as necessarily as crazy as some of my friends that are running companies. It's just like the, the turnover rate is so high because there's so many opportunities up in the Bay Area too. So I think LA is just a different market. And, and I appreciate what the market brings and also allows me to have a, a little bit of stability that I'm seeing that SF is lacking right now. And I yeah. think that's also one of the reasons that allows us to kind of grow steadily and being profitable and, and being very, very competitive in a fairly competitive vertical as well. I couldn't agree with you more on the concerns on employee churn there. I think it's about 1.3 years, the average day for a sales rep in SF today. But I do want to, Jerry, move into my That's favorite. crazy. I did not know that. I, yeah, yeah, so with us, just to give you a sense, like it's about three to five years, actually. So so it's very different. There you go. 1.3 versus three to five. But I do want to do Jerry's 60 seconds faster. So this is especially for you, Jerry. 60 seconds per statement. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Quality or quantity of logos in the early days? I would say quality because people don't need to see 50 logos. But if you have five that are relevant to them, that's all that matters. Question from Mark Mullen. Does your mother still power the retention science team with her home cooking? <laughs> Yes, my mother, who, God bless her, when she comes to visit from Taiwan, she literally cooks up a whole meal for the entire company. And then so she spends all morning cooking, and then uh, my parents bring the food to the company, and then we serve lunch Tuesdays and Fridays. <laughs> I'm sorry, that has to be a case for company culture. But tell me a moment in your life that served as an inflection point and really changed the way that you think. A, a very, very wise man told me that as a CEO, you need to learn how to sell. I'm more of a, a, a product guy and never, actually never, never knew how to sell. And then so in the last couple of years, I've really learned about sales process, read every single blog post there is about selling and certainly finding my way to get connected with Jason, convince him to invest in my company. And that requires a little bit of salesmanship to sell to Mr. Lankin. So so yeah, I would say that's definitely an inflection point for my career to think about what I need to be to be a successful CEO. If you successfully sold to Lankin, I think you can consider yourself a master of sales, Jerry. 
tell me, when I say success in SaaS, who's the embodiment of this to you? There's so many great, great SaaS companies. I think probably Jeff from Twilio. I think that um, that company is just, since they went IPO, there was a little bit of convincing the, the, the public market. And now I think this is just a technology that is developer friendly, which we all know every company is engineering resources scarce. And so being able to scale a communication platform and, and so successfully, especially in recent 12 months and continue to really have strong earning um, quarter over quarter and having a great culture. Um, I think that's a really great one. Another one is SendGrid. Um, SendGrid is a, a partner of ours and we've been working with them for many years. And I think that's another great company that I aspire to operate in a, the same type of level of efficiency and leadership and, and just quality of the company. Final one, Jerry. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? And this could be the beginning of your first company. As you said, you've started three or the beginning of retention science. I'll let you choose. I would say, okay, let's go with the beginning of my first company. So this will be back in 2009, actually. It's been a sort of a nine, 10 years journey. I, I would say, don't be afraid of giving up ownership in your company to get capital in order to accelerate growth because your time is as essence and then there's always an opportunity cost if you're just growing at something slowly. I always say to my team, the worst thing is a death by a thousand paper cuts. And so if you don't have something that's going to scale in the long term, just drop it and then move on to the next thing because all of us are smart. All of us have finite amount of time. And so I bootstrapped my first two businesses. I certainly wish that I wasn't so stubborn and not wanting to give up percentage of my company because I thought I just needed to own everything versus giving up a, a, the right amount of company absolutely allows you to move faster, save time, and ultimately achieve and get to success a little bit sooner if you have something that is worth pursuing. Well, Jerry, as a VC, that makes me very happy to hear. But I do want to say thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the show today. Uh, we've been speaking for so long and it's been such a pleasure. So thank you so much. I loved it, Harry. Thank you so much for having me on the show and uh, looking forward to uh, listening to all your other podcasts. I mean, what a guest and such a special individual, and I could not be more excited for the times ahead with Retention Science. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can see us on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360 degree view of your reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and really increase visibility on Google. And you can head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for a trial. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications allowing you to build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices. And that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad from WeWork to Uber to Stripe. Whether you are a one office company with less than 100 people to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communications first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, 
Eularis. Eularis is a management platform for event florists. It features contact management, proposal development, wholesale production planning, and invoice and billing, all lovingly arranged for the needs of floral designers managing weddings and other special occasions. And you can learn more at eularis.com. That's U-L-A-R-A-S.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Eularis did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, we so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.